Christians for years, Christians for thousands of years, have taken great comfort and have, have found great assurance in that great promise from Jesus found in Matthew 16, verse 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, not even death itself, will stop me. Christians have loved that. We, we have been clinging to that promise ever since Jesus made that promise. I will build my church. I will do it and nothing can stop that from happening. And we love that as Christians. We know that in the end, ultimately, the church will be triumphant. It's great. It's, it's, it's magnificent. We find great assurance in that. But that declaration begs lots of questions of us. One question that it begs of us is this, and I would like to ask it to you as an individual Christian. I would like, it, I would like to ask it of you as a part of Omaha Bible Church. What assurance or assurances do you have what assurance do we have that as Jesus builds His church, that we will be a part of it? Put another way, what assurance do we have that as Jesus is building His church, that we are actually being used by Him in the process to do what He's doing? For me, that is a huge question. It's a huge question because of the time I give. It's a huge question because of the effort. It's a huge question because of the money. It's a huge question that, that in a sense troubles me because I don't want to go through my whole life. I don't want you to go through your whole life. I don't want us to go through our whole life as a church putting all of this effort forth. And in the end, we find out that, oh yes, Jesus built His church and we weren't a part of it. We might as well just start a club and join a club or something and do something different if that's going to be the case. How do we know? Can we know? And someone might suggest, perhaps you're even thinking it, I know that as Jesus is building His church, I'm a part of it because I say I believe in Jesus. And I say, great start. I wouldn't fault you for saying you believe in Jesus. I would start there too. But to say we believe in Jesus and talk about Jesus and talk about the Bible and talk about Christianity and fill life in the church and, and fill our lives filled with Jesus talk, is that really going to give us a strong sense of assurance that Jesus is using us as He builds His church? The answer to that, biblically speaking, is no. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus makes it clear same gospel, Matthew 16, we looked at Matthew 7, that the majority, the majority of folks who say Jesus stuff, who do Jesus talk, the majority of those folks are not actually in a right relationship with Jesus. And certainly we could therefore conclude they're not being used by Jesus as He builds His church. 
And I don't know about you, but that makes me unsettled. That makes me a little uncomfortable. But I'm so thankful that the Bible gives us things that make us uncomfortable because I don't want to go through my whole life self-deluded and think, oh, yeah, let's just keep committing ourselves and let's keep doing all this and let's send people across the world and let's do all these things that we do. And I wasn't even being used by Jesus to build His church. I don't want that. And so I would rather have the, 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 the clear maybe unsettling reality that the majority of those who claim to belong to Jesus, no doubt claim to be used by Jesus to build his church, aren't going to be. So then the question comes back to my question. How do we know? How do we have a strong sense of certainty that, that, that we can know that what we're doing is actually a part of what Jesus is doing, therefore it counts and it matters and it's worthy of everything that we have? Simple answer. Simple answer, even based upon what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. The way we can know is if we do what he says. <laughs> the way we can know, have assurance that we're being used by Christ as he builds his church, is if we're following him. If we're doing what he did, if we're doing what he said to do. It's pretty simple. It's very simple. We want to say, all right, what do you say, Jesus, a church is supposed to be? What do you say, Jesus, a church is supposed to do? Ah, I want assurance and certainty in my life. Ah, by the grace of God, I will do what you say. Ah, light bulb. We want to have it all count for something. We will, by the grace of God, to the best of our possible ability, and then some, do what you say. That's my hopefully helpful, hopefully stimulating, hopefully motivating introduction to this morning's installment of this mini-series that will end today on keeping our priorities straight. Keeping our priorities straight as a church, keeping our priorities straight as individual Christians, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll get back to our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, So we're going to get back into a book study, which is our, our, our normal uh, mode of operation. We'll do that next week. But today we're going to be all over the place looking at a number of priorities that have to be our priorities because they're biblical priorities if we're actually going to be a church, if we're actually going to be an effective church. If you're actually going to be a Christian and be an effective Christian, here are some of the key priorities that we really need to own and we need to have these priorities own us. I have a list of ten. It's not an inspired list per se, but each one of them is inspired in the sense that they're all grounded in what the Bible clearly teaches uh, and we'll look at these different texts. The first five are by way of review. If you haven't been with us, you can pull them up on iTunes, you can listen to them on our website, or you can just take really fast notes. Okay, here it goes. First five, I'm going to go really fast. won't do them justice, but that's because we've spent two hours on it already. So, first five, by way of review, our priorities, first and foremost, we have a priority to the glory of God. We have a priority to the glory of God, and we have a priority to the glory of God above everything else. Everything else. And ultimately, we've even seen that this is God's priority. Ultimately, since He's the one true and only God, ultimately everything is designed to reflect His greatness. That's why He made everything that He made. This is why He made us in His image, so that we would reflect something of His greatness. That's how, why He made us to be creative people, and we can make things to show and somehow emphasize that He's a great creating God. And, and we can go on and on throughout the list, and this is why in great passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, the Apostle Paul says, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, open Christmas presents early as a new tradition, 
Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, that assumes that somehow it's all designed to give glory to Him. And so therefore, you as an individual Christian, we as a church together, we want everything to somehow have that, uh, everything to point toward that ultimate aim. We try hard to love people, and we'll talk about that, but we don't want to be a people-centered church. We, we try hard to help people and meet their needs, but we don't want to ultimately be what we would call a man-centered church. We want to be a God-centered church, and it's out of our love for God that we end up loving people, but it's, an ultimate, it's ultimately an act of worship to Him. Well, as you can tell, I like to talk about this, and I'm going to have to show self-control to the glory of God and move on to number two. Okay, so I'm moving on to number two right now for the glory of God. Okay, I hope you're listening for the glory of God. Number two, second priority we need to keep straight, and that is a priority to the commitment of the sufficiency of the Bible. We are committed to the sufficiency of, a Bible, of the Bible as a church. These, none of these are new, by the way, in case you're just joining us. These are the things we've been committed to since day one. But we do believe the Bible is sufficient. It gives us everything we need to know to know God. It gives us everything we need to know to understand life. It isn't that there aren't other things outside of the Bible. That's absolutely true and right. But this is the grid by which we interpret them. This is how we, need, we know God's will. And we believe it's sufficient because of passages we looked at in the past, like 2 Timothy 3.16, that tells us, uh, that it's God's Word, that would tell us it's sufficient. And then 2 Timothy 3.17 comes and just blatantly says it. We have a Word from God. It equips us. It equips us. It fits us to do everything that we would need to do as Christian men and women. And we are committed to that. I fell asleep last night watching some guy in a what looked like a long pink dress and a backward collar and too much jewelry on. Uh, but he was a religious leader. And, you know, I, in one sense, was disgusted by it all uh, because of the things that the man was saying. Uh, but I also was very encouraged because at least he was honest, uh, a false teacher who's honest. I know it's a dichotomy, but nevertheless, even a stop clock is right twice a day. So anyway, he said, I believe the Bible is true, but it's not sufficient. And I thought, ha, huh, how refreshing. <laughs> at least he just said it. Because how many of us, how many pastors believe the Bible's true, kind of, sort of, but you know, it's the Bible plus something. If we're going to do an evangelistic outreach, we've got to have the Bible, oh yes, but then we also have to add human wisdom and bathe it and reshape it and reform it in what we want to do. Or the way to design the functioning of the church even. What, what, what do we want to do? And then when we decide what we want to do, and it's the Bible, and then it's what we want to do, and then ultimately in the end, who gets the glory? We do, because we figured it out. We have a new way. Whereas we want to stick to what God has to say, the eternal God gives us His eternal Word, and when we do what He says, according to His Word, it shows that He's great. And we submit to Him. Interestingly enough, even when it comes to evangelism, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in chapter 2 that it's on purpose that some of the things that God tells us to do as a church are apparently, not actually, are apparently foolish. And God does that, and He works greatly even through apparent foolishness, so that in the end, when a great work is accomplished, it shows how great God is, and even though He works through apparent foolishness and weakness, shows how strong and powerful He is. So we are a church, and we want to be a church that is committed to the sufficiency of the Bible. And that leads to number three, a third priority. Pray for me that I hurry up. 
to the glory of God. Number three, the Bible is proclaimed. The preaching of the Bible. Okay, so it's for the glory of God, and the Bible is God's Word. We believe that to be true. Historically, Christians have always believed that. Okay, God is to be glorified. God has spoken. He said He's spoken sufficiently. Hmm, what should we do? (laughs) We should preach it. We should proclaim it with boldness. That's even the Word in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Preach the Word. Herald the Word. That's what we want to do. We're committed to doing that. That's not the only thing we do as a church, but it is one of the things we do as a church because it's mandated for us, and so we're committed to preaching God's Word. I don't think expository preaching, which is preaching the Bible, not preaching about the Bible, preaching using the Bible, I don't think expository preaching, preaching the Bible is as a negotiable. It's not our favorite style. It's not what we prefer. It's what we have to do. It's a biblical mandate, and that's why we do that as our regular staple. Number four, a fourth priority for us as a local church would be the purity of the gospel. The purity of the gospel. Let me make it real simple. If Jesus died on the cross, and by dying on the cross, He did everything necessary to not only forgive us of our sins, but also to give us the perfect righteousness that we need then what's left to do? There's nothing left to do other than to believe. Believe means trust or depend upon. And that's the Gospel, the good news of salvation, that Jesus Christ, based upon His merits, that He lived a perfect life on our behalf, earning our righteousness that we couldn't ever earn, then dying in our place, satisfying the just wrath of God, because God says the wages of sin is death and we're all sinners... And then Jesus sits down, according to the book of Hebrews, at the right hand of the Father because His work is finished. What's the gospel? Keep trying harder? No. What's the gospel? Give more money? No. What's the gospel? Come to church and and maybe God will accept you one day? No. What's the gospel? When you have people that you love who die, give the church even more money and pay other people to pray for them too, so maybe eventually someday they'll be in the presence of God? No, that's not good news. The good news is that you could never do it. We could never do it. We could never help other people do it. That's why Jesus Christ came here to do it for us. That is to live for us, to die for us, to be raised again from the dead on our behalf. And you must therefore do one thing. Believe. Depend. Trust. That's the gospel. We're radically committed to the gospel because we're radically committed to the glory of God. Because when you proclaim that message... It humbles sinners. It says you can't do it. It humbles church leaders. You can't do it for the people. It exalts Christ. It glorifies Him because it says, Christ, You did everything for us and we will proclaim that message and we will urge people to trust in You and not in themselves or in their church or in anything. To trust in Christ and Christ alone, and it glorifies and honors Christ and Christ alone. As I mentioned last time, this is why even right now, according to the book of Revelation, right now in heaven, they're worshiping the Lamb. They're worshiping Him. They're not doing high fives in heaven. Sinners aren't in heaven right now giving high fives to Jesus and saying, We did it! Religious leaders aren't in heaven right now with Jesus 
doing high fives, doing mutual, you know, uh, attaboys. We did it. We, we got all these people here. It's not the case. They're saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Isn't that good? That's good news. That's great news. That is, that's the best news. That's the gospel. We're committed to that in a radical way, and we need to be committed to that in a radical way. Number five is related to that, the great commission, the priority of the great commission. If Jesus Christ did it all, if he's not a liar, we don't think he is, and he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, and he said, and he did, and, and he said, and, and, and as you are going, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, as you are going, literally, make disciples teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, even the as you are going, make more disciples. That's what we do. So we are seeking to do that as a church. It has to be a priority for us as a church. So as you are going, wherever you are going, you need to be communicating the gospel, which is a way of making disciples. We want you to do that. We need to do that as a church. That happens on this continent. It happens on other continents. It's both and, not either or. I've been praying for my kids now since before they were born. One of the things that I've been praying, just a helpful illustration, I hope, trying to be more Great Commission-minded, trying to be more globally-minded, not both and, not, not either or, but both and, and, and I pray for my kids. It might be news to, to two of them who are here, but I pray for them that wherever God sends them, wherever they go, whether it be for business, because of marriage, or as formal Church sent out missionaries, quote unquote, that they would have a heart for people and they would love people even more than their dad or mom do. And they would be quick to speak the good news of Jesus Christ. And I've literally prayed, God, whether you send them to Iowa, as difficult as it is for me to say that. (laughs) Just kidding. We love you, (laughs) Iwegians. Literally, Iowa... Or Taiwan. Or China. Or Kentucky. And just on a regular basis, not every day, not always in front of them, since they're real small, just God, wherever they are, wherever you choose to send them, may they they live for your glory and for your honor, and may they be great commission-minded. As they are going, may they be making disciples. And I would encourage you to do that to talk like that, to think like that. And in one sense, it's the last thing I want is my children to go to Iowa. I mean, Taiwan. (sighs) Wasn't even funny, was it? You weren't listening or something. Anyway, you get the idea. As a church, we really do want to be that way. It's not, let's send people to go and do missions for us. We do missions here and we send people, and it's both. And I think God is helping us to grow in this particular area and have it be not either or, but both and. It's got to be a priority for us. Let's move on. Let's move on to new ground now. Number six, prayer. Prayer is a priority for us. I'll ask you to turn, if you would, to a place that's perhaps a non-traditional place to look, and that is Matthew chapter 22. And if you go to Matthew 22, it doesn't say anything about prayer, but it says everything about prayer. 
And I realize this could be a whole sermon series and we could talk all about prayer. Uh, We don't have the time to do that, but I I just want to plant one thought in your mind that might be a new thought for you regarding prayer. I could take you to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where the early church devoted themselves to prayer. That's something that the church has been doing since the church started, therefore we should. Uh, I could take you to the Apostle Paul where he prays for Christians to grow spiritually in Colossians 1. That would be good. I could take you to Philippians 1 where the Apostle Paul prays for Christians to be discerning. That would be good. I could take you to Ephesians 1 where the Apostle Paul is praising God. Uh, That's a form of prayer as he's thinking about God's great grace and salvation. We could go all over the place. We could look and see that we're supposed to pray all the time, pray without ceasing. That's all for another time. But I snuck it in, didn't I? (laughs) I want you to think about this issue of loving God. In Matthew 22, we see the greatest commandment, which we know to be true. We know what it is. But look at verse 37 with me, if you would. They ask him, what's the greatest commandment? In verse 36, verse 37, Jesus says, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. What does that mean? It's easy. The greatest commandment is you would love God with everything that you are. Every ounce of your being is aimed toward Him. That goes back to our point number one. It's all for the glory of God. But I want you to begin thinking about this a little bit because we think about prayer as a chore. We all do on one level or another. And I'm just going to try to encourage you to maybe for a season stop trying to see prayer as a chore. I'm going to instead, instead of saying, pray, even though I want to do that too. Right now, I want to say, I'm not going to say don't pray. (laughs) I want to say, love God. Do the greatest thing we're supposed to do. The very reason why your heart beats. The very reason why you are redeemed if you are. Love God with everything that you are. And guess what will happen? You will talk to Him. It's just what you will do, which is what prayer is. If you love God like this, it's just, it's just natural. You're going to talk to God. And you have a crisis in your life, what are you going to do? It's the person you love more than anyone else. You're going to talk to Him. You have a great need in your life, it's the person you love more than anyone else. What are you going to do? You're going to say, here's my need. Uh, you're, you're feeling down, what are you going to do? You're going to say, God, I'm feeling down, could you help me? This is what the Psalms are all about. You're excited and encouraged and you're going to share good news with someone else. It's the person you love more than anyone else. You're going to talk to God and say, God, you're, 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 this is great news. Thank you so much. And I could use illustrations that would be very helpful. I will. I love my wife more than anyone on the planet. I love my children in a unique way. I love them more than any other people on the planet. That's why I never talk to any of them. (laughs) Hello? That would be ludicrous. You would say, you're demented. Or you're just not telling the truth. Because if I really loved them, I would talk to them. I really do love them and I really talk to them. And while there can be those difficult seasons when it's hard to communicate something in me that just wants to talk and I want to communicate and I want to share my fears and I want to share my my joys and I want to share my needs and desires. It's just what we do. So if I may do it this way, let me urge you to focus on who God is, to focus on what God has done in Christ, to be amazed by it, to see that He is a personal God, that He cares, and you're loving Him for all of these great things that are true and guess what will happen? 
you'll pray. And we need to be a praying church. When we pray, what happens? We show that we're not prideful, independent, and arrogant. When we pray as a church and as individuals who make up the church, we show dependence upon God. When He answers yes or no, who gets the glory? God gets the glory for that. So this is another way we're glorifying God. It's by praying. It's depending upon Him. Someone once said that that prayer for the Christian should be like breathing for the human being. It's just what we do. It's just natural. It's just normal. It's just a part of life. It's just talking to God as we go our ways. Let's move on to number seven. Another priority for us that we need to keep straight would be the priority of love. The priority of love. And since you're already in Matthew chapter 22, we saw the greatest commandment. We can look then, if you drop down, based upon the first command, greatest commandment, you have the second greatest commandment. It's logically connected. Look at verse 39. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I hope and pray that we are a church that is characterized by the glory of God. Seeking to be God-centered, man-centered. You want to be fancy? Seeking to not be anthropocentric, but being theocentric. And we even know how to say it like that. It makes it look like we're serious because we are. I hope we're that kind of church and we're praying that we would be increasing in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1. And we would be praying for discernment, Philippians chapter 1. And all of these things would be true. We'd be committed to preaching the Word of God and all of these things would be true. And I hope we would be doing all of them out of love for God. But we are also to be loving. And to be loving our neighbor. Who's our neighbor? Our neighbor, based upon what Jesus would say in another place, is anybody who has a need. Somebody has a need, what do we do? We help them. How do people know that we really love God? Well, because we do what God said in the first greatest commandment. We love Him. And the logical outflow is we love other people who bear His image. Right? For me, in my own life, this is probably the greatest area where I would want growth and development and prayer. Because there's a big circle loving your neighbor, which is anyone in need. And in the small circle within the big circle, love other Christians. That's John chapter 13, I believe it is. How will people know that you are my disciples? They will know... By your love for each other. You know the smaller circle? I've done a lot better in the smaller circle. Not knowing everyone here, but knowing a number of you, knowing the kind of circles we run in, I would suggest that historically we have been a lot better at the smaller circle. Loving other Christians. And you know what? We need to be good at that. In fact, if you read 1 John, we're not going to take the time to to go to 1 John. One of the ways you can tell if somebody's a Christian or not, based upon 1 John, is if they have a love for other Christians. So certainly we need to excel there. I would urge you to excel there. We do need to love each other. It's one of the ways people will know that we're Christians. It's one of the ways you can know if you're a Christian or not. I remember when I was a college pastor, I, I used to, to say this quite often. I don't know why I don't do it anymore, but I would say, you know what? Loving other Christians starts by showing up. How can you love someone? He's not talking about an emotion, although emotions are good gifts from God. He's talking about actually sacrificing for them, doing something to help them that costs you something. 
Well, we can't really love other Christians if we don't ever show up. But it's more than just showing up. It's actually doing something that's going to help them. But remember, it's not just the small circle. It's not just the John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35 circle. It's the big circle. Love your neighbor. Anyone in need. If there's something on the list that we probably need to prioritize that we haven't prioritized, it's probably that one. My opinion. In my life, maybe it's confession time. Let's move on to another mark, to another priority for us as a local church. Number eight, sort of switching gears here. Leadership. Leadership is a priority for us. And to have biblical leadership. You could turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the Bible, perhaps it's new to you. You could just listen and jot down the passage. Or you could look at the table of contents and you can find 1 Timothy Timothy chapter 3 would be an example of a passage of Scripture that talks about the priority of leadership. See, what we we don't want to do as a church is we don't want to say, Everyone should lead. I don't know about you, but when you're in a position of leadership and you want to be humble, because you do, you, you, you almost want to say that. Because I'm thinking, who am I to lead? I, I'm not smarter than, you know, I, I'm not the sharpest crayon in the box. Uh, I, why should I be leading other people and then be over them in that sense? And I, and I want to be a servant leader and I know all that, but there's something in me that wants to say, you know what, we, we should all lead. And I suppose if the church were mine and I were building it, I might be apt to say that. That causes my mind to go back to, okay, Jesus' church, he bought it with his own blood, and he's building it, so uh, what does he say? Oh, he doesn't say everybody should lead. All right. And this does make sense too, doesn't it? It just makes common sense. Not everyone is fit to lead. You know, we don't give the keys to the car to our small children. And say, you know, we're all equally human beings in this family. And I wouldn't want to hurt you or make you feel bad. So I can use my my daughter, Allie. And Allie is six years old. I'll talk about her because she's not in here. Here, here are the keys to the tundra, Allie. I want you to feel good about yourself. So, you know, take it out. And you say, that's just stupid. Why are you even saying that? That's silly. And you know that I love Allie. And you know that I I, I want to teach her when the time comes. And she can do that and so on and so forth. But not everybody's qualified to drive the car. All equally human beings. Not all equally mature. Not all equally able. And so when it comes to leading Christ's church, he showed great wisdom in saying, there are qualifications for leading my church. Pretty straightforward. And he gives this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here's one example. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And then he goes on to give these qualifications. And they're pretty serious qualifications. They're qualifications for leadership. And we take those seriously as a church. We want to take those seriously as a church. We want to have a process that people go through. And we don't want to have it be like some people that I know and who are very close to me who are not Christians but they're attached to churches. And they'll say things like, Oh, you know, it's my year to be on the deacon board. That's that's not Christ's church. That's not how it's supposed to be. He takes leadership very seriously. 
qualifications are, are very serious. I would remind you, though, lest you think that these are somehow not applicable to all of us, that each one of these qualifications, in one way or another, are things that all Christians are supposed to be committed to. So there's a helpful benefit why we have qualifications for an overseer. And we can look at an overseer, or if you're a King James person, it's bishop or pastor or elder. And we can look at them and say, they're modeling these things in their life, in their home life, in their personal life. And, and so I can look at one and I can say, I want to be like that. In a sense, they're modeling the Christian life for us. And so we want to take leadership seriously. And maybe it's not just on this level. Maybe it's on another level. We take leadership in other areas seriously as well. And many of you have appreciated that because you don't walk in the door and we say, Oh, it's nice to meet you. Would you like to run our children's program? And if you had children, you'd say, No, but I would like to go check out the next church down the street because this one's not for me. Because you don't even know me yet. I haven't shown myself to be faithful in little things. Why would you want me having that kind of oversight and leadership? So we want people to be tested. We want people to put time in and get to know their character. These things just make common sense. Let's move on for the sake of time to number nine. Number nine on the list would be the members are accountable. There is accountability. You could just summarize it by saying there's accountability. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, you'll see this. And if you've ever taken our Getting Started class, our Newcomers class, we talk about this in there. Um, I'll just remind you that we take accountability serious as well. By the way, I think I mentioned it last time, but if you want to know where this outline is coming from, uh, it, it came from a sermon series we did here a long time ago. And it's in the literature rack out there, and it's a brochure called The Marks of a Faithful Church. And I say that not to flaunt the fact that I'm preaching an old sermon. <laughs> I say that to remind you that this is not a new course we're charting for Omaha Bible Church. This is just a time to say, let's recommit ourselves to our Christian vows, if you will, as a church, because it's so easy to forget about what we're about and what we're committed to. Okay, let's go ahead and look at this accountability from Jesus again. If this were my church, I might not do it this way. If this were your church, you might not do it this way, but... Um, Jesus said he bought it. It belongs to him. So look at verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. There's step one. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. And I always like to say, notice it doesn't say call the church. Uh, it doesn't say tell the pastor. It doesn't say put it on the prayer chain. Um, it doesn't say share it as a concern at a prayer meeting. Obligation is for you to go in private, even though that's the hardest thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's because what Jesus says Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Pretty hardcore. That would be someone who is spiritually unclean, someone who is a traitor as a tax collector, which Matthew would have been before he was converted. Then verse 18, I don't want to leave that out. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What does he mean by that? He's saying, if you do it this way, you can know that heaven agrees with you. You did it the biblical way, you've done the right thing, you've done the thing that honors Christ. I don't know about you, but the first time I saw that, I had to pick my job off the floor. 
Some of you might have never even seen in the Bible before, and you're thinking, is this the New Testament? It's in the New Testament, given by Jesus Christ, the all-wise one of Colossians. So we want to take accountability serious because it's not our church, it's Christ's church. He's building it. We want to be a part of what He's doing. We want to partner with Him. And He says this is supposed to be done, so we're going to do this for the glory of Christ. And I would submit to you, if we don't do it, if we're not willing to do it, then we're not actually having everything we do aimed at loving God and the glory of God. When we do this and we do it the right way, Christ is glorified because we're putting ourselves under Him doing His business His way. When we don't do it, we're above Christ saying we've got a better way. I'll never forget the first time I was at a church. And I, 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 I was raised in a church, went to church every Sunday, most Wednesdays, every holiday. I got older. I went to church if I was sober or not sober. I went to church my whole life and was not a Christian, thought I was. Went off to college. Somebody actually opened the Bible and, and communicated the gospel to me. And, and by the grace of God, I believe this to be true. And I would like to say that then once I became a Christian and I left a church that didn't teach the Bible and I went to a, an evangelical church, that I saw this happen. I didn't see it for years. The day I saw it, though, again, jaw, floor, up, going, say what? I just went home, got my Bible out, read it. Thought, yeah, I believe that. Because <laughs> Jesus said it. Why wouldn't I believe it? If it's His church, and you know what? I've been good with it ever since. And I would encourage you to be good with it too. And if you're not good with it, I'm not trying to be harsh or cold, but if you're not good with it, and you want to start an organization, go for it. But don't call it a church. Call it the Club of Pat. You know? Would you like to join? We'll have sweet fellowship around the doctrines of Pat. And perhaps we can all pool our ignorance, I mean our knowledge, and we can have, you know, commonly held doctrines. We'll call it the Royal Order of the Goats. I don't know. <laughs> Legion 39. I mean, you know, it's a free country. Go for it. But the title Christian is associated with Christ, a follower of Christ. I said this last week, I'll say it again. You know, I went to public schools and I got this figured out. A Christian is a follower of Christ. Ah, brilliant. This is a great time for us, folks, to, to decide. And we have to decide over and over again. We have to decide week in and week out. We're at the crossroads every day of our life. We say we're Christians, we say we're a church, and we decide if we're going to act like Christians and act like a church, or we're going to act like the royal order of the goats. The religion of Pat, the religion of Lisa, or whatever it is. The collective consciousness of Legion 39. By the grace of God, I say, you know what? Let's keep calling ourselves a church, and the way we can do that with any kind of confidence is by submitting to the Lord of the church who bought the church. Let's move on for the sake of time to go to number 10. And that would be the equipping of the saints. It needs to be a priority for us. Finally, although certainly there's more to be said about what we need to be and do as a church, but we do need to be committed to equipping. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, you'll look at a classic passage regarding this. We do want to be an equipping church where 
You don't just come in, get your cards stamped, and we say, all right, now you're a Christian. Stay that way. We don't want to be a church where one of my former pastors uh, put it this way, where we're going to be a mile wide and an inch deep. We don't want to be that kind of church because that's not a biblical church. We want to be a church that, 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 is, that is a million miles wide. Yes, outreach is great. And we want to be a million miles deep because we're supposed to grow as Christians. We're not supposed to be wearing our spiritual diapers for the rest of our lives, sucking our spiritual thumbs, drinking milk. We're supposed to be eating food. We're supposed to be eating solids. We're supposed to be eating meat as the writer to the Hebrews talked about. We want to grow up. And so how do we do that? Well, what we do is, yes, we're going to be wide and broad, telling people the simple message that even children can understand and believe. And then we're not going to leave them as children spiritually. We're going to help them grow and go down deep into the truths of God's Word. And we can be equipped and we can be mature. And say, bring on the fillets, right? I'm getting ready for this. And I can do ministry as a, as a spiritual adult. Well, we want to help people do this as a church, and we want you to play a role in this. A great text is Ephesians chapter 4, where Jesus is it's talking about Jesus giving gifts to the church, gifted people to the church. In verse 11, it says, And He, Christ, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And here's what I italicized in my notes. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. It's not the only passage we could go to, but it's just one that I selected because it provides a great talking point for what we need to be committed to. We can look at other gifts as well. We have gifted individuals so that they can do everything for us. No. We have gifted individuals so that they can come and be a part of our life and help us to do the very thing they're gifted to do in training us. So we have a class called Everyday Evangelism where we have someone who is gifted in evangelism train the rest of the saints to know how to do it because we're all supposed to do the work of service. That's what's happening here. An evangelist is not the guy with five suits and five sermons that travels around the planet, right? According to the text here, that's not who this is. The evangelist is given by Christ to the church to do all the evangelism for us. No. Given by Christ to the church to equip the rest of us yahoos, myself being the chief yahoo when it comes to that, help me know how to do this. Equip me. Equip me so that I can more effectively communicate the gospel with the people who live in my neighborhood. So I can more effectively communicate the gospel to the people that I meet at the gym or wherever it may be. Preaching is another way of equipping. So, all right, I want to preach God's Word and, and, and help. Yes, we're going to give milk sometimes because we know we have new Christians, but we're going to give steak sometimes too because we've got those of us who have been growing as Christians, and it's part of equipping and, and building up the body of Christ. And do notice what it says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service. The word service is the same word for ministry. Some of you might even have a Bible translation that says ministry. And that's why in the newcomers class I say, we expect you, if you're here at Omaha Bible Church, to be a minister. Minister means servant. It's not the same as a pastor. That's because every saint, synonym for Christian, is to serve, is to do ministry. So we want you to feel the pressure to be equipped here. Well, that's assuming something. 
If you're being equipped here, you're getting equipped for something, and that is for serving, for ministry. And so, if we're going to be a healthy church, we're going to be a Christ-exalting, Christ-glorifying church, we're going to have saints, believers, who serve and don't only, let's follow through with the S, sit. Saints who serve and don't just sit. If you're not serving, you're not loving other Christians, you're not loving your neighbor in that sense, and Christ's body is not being built up the way it should be, it's not a good thing. You're not doing your part in, 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 in helping us to be a faithful church, a Christ-exalting church. And so we're going to love you and smile and say, stop sitting. Get involved. Get plugged in. Well, I'll say at the end here what I said in the first hour, and I know I talk about the weather too much. Everyone does. I complain too much. You pray that I would stop complaining so much. But for the sake of an illustration and conclusion, let me just go on record as saying I hate cold weather. (laughs) It's that time of year when I think maybe we could all go somewhere else. Some of you have the means to be able to. (laughs) I'd like to go in your suitcase. I love Omaha. I love the people of Omaha. I hate the weather of Omaha. (laughs) To the glory of God. (laughs) Somebody told me after the first service, they said, I've been waiting for 10 months for this. I love this. Well, you know what? You'll all grow up eventually and see it's a result of the fall. (laughs) Because there was no death, right? Before sin. Anyway. I don't want to get in a public argument with a guy named Calvin during a service. <laughs> all joking aside, I do have to say that with all of our warts, with all of our shortcomings and weaknesses, and we have many of them, I know that. I believe that more than ever. I love Omaha Bible Church. I absolutely love Omaha Bible Church. For starters, because we really believe that we haven't arrived. (laughs) That's so good and healthy. But also because so many of you are committed to these like precious truths. And we have great fellowship around them. And by the grace of God, by the grace of God amidst all the weaknesses and shortcomings, by the grace of God we don't have an identity crisis. We're not looking for the next big wave to catch as far as trends are concerned. What does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? And how about if we just do that? Acknowledging that we can't do it right, perfectly. Instead of hiding behind the false cloak of humility that says we can't know, let's just do it our way instead. That's pride. Humility before God is saying, God... This is what you've said. All right, we'll do it. Warts and all. I love that. I absolutely cherish that. And if God implodes the whole thing next week, if we destroy the whole thing, this fragile thing called the church, next month or next year, and someday it will happen, I'm at least going to look back and say, those were good days. 
Those were great days, great blessings from God, where he just seemed to rally so many people committed to the straightforward, clear truth of God's word and demanded it. I love those days. I hope you're enjoying them as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together. I'm so looking forward to getting back into Matthew and seeing even how it all ended for Jesus. And even though it's such a tragic story and it's such bad news, in the same breath we all know that it wasn't a tragedy. It was all according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, as it says in Acts chapter 2, and it was for our redemption. And we live in that world and we love those truths and we love to honor Christ and praise Him, the giver of all good gifts, the very one who promised to build His church. Lord, we would ask that You would give us days. You would give us days ahead for fruitful and faithful ministry and where we have glaring weaknesses, God, You would help us fill in those gaps, not so that we can look glorious, but so that You can. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.